0: Um, It's the first time that Vanessa has ever been to the States. And so when Mike saw us at the front, he was like, so good to see you, Vanessa. Not that bothered about Steve, but it's really good to see you, Vanessa. So thank you so much for inviting us to be part of today. Um, It's been a privilege to consider Mike and Heidi great friends over Years and years, and to be able to be with you today is a joyful privilege. And I can only say I am very sorry for how long I've been lying to you about whether or not I'm coming. So there you go. Um, I can only apologise. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Let me pray. Father, of all the, the lovely things that we want to say today, we want more than anything to hear you speak to us. Father, if all we are here to do is to share our own collection of good ideas, what a waste of time it would be. But we are here, and we get to listen to you as you speak from your word by your spirit. Please, I pray that you might help me to speak faithfully and clearly, and that you would help all of us to listen with open and attentive hearts. We pray, please, that your word would not be snatched from us. But that you would accomplish your purposes in our hearts and lives and in this your church. In Jesus' name, Amen. I wonder if, as we start, I can ask you to consider with me what you think it means to live well. Seems like a good question to ask, doesn't it? On a 10th anniversary celebra- celebration, what is the good life? What is it that makes for a meaningful, fulfilling, satisfying life? Now, as you uh, think about the answer to that question, let me suggest that there are basically two ways that you might be answering that in your mind right now. Uh, On the one hand, you might think about things on the outside, and on the other hand, you might think about things on the inside. Uh, So you might be thinking about things that you, you need to have or possess in order to have a good life. Or you might be thinking about things that you need to be on the inside in order to possess a good life. Yeah, think about it for a moment. If it's, if it's outside things that make for a good life, then perhaps the, the most important thing is that you own your own home, say, for example. Or that you enjoy good physical health or that you have enough money or that you have a good job. Perhaps our children need to, to go to good schools or to play sports or whatever it is but if the good life is not about what happens on the outside but it's more about what happens on the inside then the questions that concern you are not so much the possessions that you have but more about that desire to be able to be who you long to be on the inside you know, that i can live my life without having to pretend to be anyone that i'm not you know the the, the inside answer says that the, the good life is essentially one where i get to live out my dreams not be wracked with depression or full of anxiety. You know, I might not be rich, I might not have all the possessions that I want, but I am doing what I want. I am being myself, we might say, what my inner desires tell me to do. Now, I reckon that where we live in London, we have pretty much decided that it is the second answer and not the first answer that is basically right You know, inner satisfaction, I think, matters more to the people that I live around than it does that they have all the stuff and the trimmings. You know, we live in a city in London where there are enough rich people that we see all the time who live miserable lives. They have no friends, they have no community, and they're popping antidepressants. So we know, don't we, that actually having the stuff that you want isn't really the key to it, so it must be the inside, we think. We've begun, I think, to see that there's a shallowness to thinking that our lives are simply made up of the stuff that we have. And Western thought, I think, now basically says it's, it's inside riches that matter more than outside. Let's, let's be who we really are. You know, let me do me, you do you, and everything will be all right. I'll be true to myself, I'll live my best life, and all will be good. Now, as you come and have a look at Ephesians 3, what you need to see is essentially that Paul agrees that what's going on inside matters more than what's going on outside. Perhaps you notice that this prayer mentions nothing about circumstances. He's told us only a few verses earlier, if you know the book, that he's in prison. And he doesn't pray here that he would be released from prison. He doesn't pray that the Ephesians would be in good health. He doesn't pray that they may pass their exams or do well in the next college football game. Instead, verse 16, he prays that they will be strengthened in the inner being. Because the good life, life with lived well, he says, comes from the inner being and not from outer possessions or circumstances. And so that's the concern of his prayer. But, and this is where we need to be really careful together this morning, when he says inner being in verse 16, he doesn't mean what we mean or certainly what the world means by being true to ourselves or the inner us. Paul's inner being is not the same as the 21st century individualistic self. It's crucial that we see this as we start. Just glance back with me to chapter 2 and let me show you what he means here. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. Those are astonishing words, aren't they? Paul's point here is that our natural individualistic self, far from being the source of a good life, is the source of slavery and death. And notice that it's described as the the passions of the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, a place that leaves us at the end of verse 3, like everyone else, deserving God's judgment. Hardly the good life, is it? It's more like the life of a condemned slave. Let me pause here, just make sure that we get this. We need, I think, probably to recognize that we live at a rather odd time in history where, where maybe more than some previous generations, we can, sh- we can see the shallowness of wealth and materialism more clearly. You know, the, the, the heroes of our age are not the people hoarding their money, but are those who are simplifying their lives. Certainly if your Instagram feed's anything like mine. You know, it's the, it's the van lifers. Yeah, do you have that over here? They're the people who we aspire to be, who have stripped down and simplified their lives, not the people who are living in a mansion. But it seems to be that that clarity over the shallowness of external material possessions has come with it, a kind of blindness that doesn't seem to have noticed that me doing me, you doing you, is not a source of freedom and joy, but a source of slavery and death and judgment. Here's the truth of it, isn't it? If... If I get all that I want on the inside, I have to face the harrowing fact that lots of the things that I want are terrible for me. The truth is that living for my inner desires pulls me all over the place and leaves me with nothing. I'm kind of grasping after the wind, aren't I? I open my hand, there's nothing there. You know, if you were to ask Paul our opening question, Paul, what is is the good life? He wouldn't say anything about individualistic self. You say, you know, what what makes for a good life, Paul? What is a life well lived? He would say something like this. Don't start with your cravings, your wants, your desires. They will leave you in the pit. Don't start with your external possessions either. He would say this. Start with faith in Jesus Christ. Start with a faith that takes hold of a whole new kind of life by the Spirit. A life where through Christ's death, sins are forgiven, righteousness is satisfied, and God's glory is displayed. Start there, he says. You see, imagine it like this, ne- next to our church building in London, We've, we moved to London in July, uh, and we live in a, in a corner of London which has had lots and lots of social problems over the years. Uh, and there's a whole series of uh, old apartments which are uh, slated for demolition, there are people uh, squatting them and all sorts um, at the moment. Now, imagine that I, I said to you, listen, um, I know you want a place in London, you know, everyone wants a place in London, don't they, you know, I'll give you a place in London, okay, it's one of these flats. You're really welcome to it. You know, I, I hand over to the, you the keys and say, it's yours, you can have it. its place in London, you've always wanted it. I, I'll give you two choices as you move in. I, I, can, I, can either, I can either wash the windows on the outside or I can put some new pictures on the wall. Wh- which one do you want? Well, you'd, you'd have a look at the flat and you'd go, Steve, I don't, I don't want either of those things. This place is, this place is dead on the inside. You know, don't, don't just wash the windows or put some pictures up this place needs destroying and rebuilding i don't i don't want this now in a sense that's what's going on in Ephesians we don't need just the windows cleaning or a few new pictures actually this life outside of christ is dead and dying it's a wreck it's a ruin It needs scutting and starting again, and that's Paul's point. The good life, the satisfied life, life as it's meant to be lived, is more radical than having the stuff that you want, or even self-actualization, having your dreams fulfilled. Because without Christ, neither of those things matter. Because without Christ, we're like a derelict flat. The whole place is a wreck, and we need a new life, a new inner being from Christ through the forgiveness of the cross by the Spirit, an inner being that knows and glories in the God who made us. Now that means, I think, I need, before we go any further, and I know we've not really even arrived at Ephesians 3 yet. I'm not going to look at Mike, because he'll be scowling at me. But anyway, we've not yet arrived at Ephesians 3. But I need to ask you this question. Have you put your faith in Christ like that? Do you know what it is to have new life in your inner being? Do you? Do you know what it is to long to live a life that pleases the Lord because he has made you new from the inside? Because I, I need to say to you that unless you have experienced that, the good life, life as it is meant to be lived, even in our fallen and broken world, is outside of your grasp. Unless you turn to the Lord Jesus and say to him something like this, "You know, Lord Jesus, I, I, I am like a derelict flat in Kilburn in London dead on the inside. Please, Lord, make me alive to know you, to love you, to live for you. We're not going to do just any kind of window washing or hanging pictures. We need this radical transformation. And I recognize that for many of you in this room, maybe even most of you in this room, we started there years ago, just like the Ephesian church had. And for us, we need to hear, don't we, what Paul says to the Ephesian Christians as he, as he prays for them that they would be strengthened in their inner beings. What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to be renewed on the inside? Well, let me show you just briefly three things about what this renewal on the inside uh, looks like. The first thing to say is this. Inner renewal is a prayer project. Inner renewal is a prayer project. Uh, This is just pointing out the obvious from our passage, which is that it is a prayer. Verse 14 starts, if you look down, with Paul kneeling before the Father. Probably not literally kneeling as he writes, and maybe not even kneeling every time he prays. Rather, the point is that he is recognizing and describing for us uh, his posture before God. I am needy, he says. God has everything. He's the source of every good gift. It's the same idea at the end of the passage where he says... Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Essentially, Paul is recognizing that everything he is longing for, this strong inner being, this robust life free from the slavery of the flesh and from the shallowness of materialism, all of that, the good life, is outside of his grasp. It will take a miracle of God to bring it, a miracle that God is well able to do in response to his prayers. Now, of course, this is vital that we see this, isn't it? Christian growth, the Christian life well lived, satisfying, glorifying to God, useful in his hands, is given to us, not achieved by us. It's interesting how verse 16 emphasizes it. The verb uh, to grant there is sort of unnecessary in the English. In fact, if you've got an NIV version, it drops it. He just says, he may strengthen you. But the ESV does a good job of of sort of straightening it out into an English that sort of makes sense. Literally here, the double verb means, you know, to grant them, strengthening them. With power through uh, through his spirit in your inner being. In, In other words, it's a kind of double underlining of the fact that this is something that we are asking god to give us not something that we are achieving on our own you see i think what paul understands here is that there is a there is a gap between where his christian life is and where he longs for it to be a gap between where the ephesians christian lives are and where he longs them to be and that gap is made up not with their works but with god's goodness seen at work in them by his spirit. Only God can change that. The only person capable of moving the Ephesians to know God more and to give him more glory is God himself. So he prays. Again, I don't think it's hard, is it, to think about how this applies to any of us directly? Mike Jones, we are celebrating today, has 10 years of ministry been done. How? In God's strength alone. And I say to you, Mike, and to all of us, if you want 10 more years or 20 more years or 30 more years or 40 more years, I forget how young you are, uh, it will be done by prayer. Ask God to grant you, strengthening you. You know, if as a church you want to live the good life that God has called you together, you won't administrate your way there. You know that, don't you? It's so easy for church members to get frustrated about the poor administration in a church. Well, maybe that's just our church members in London. But you know, don't you, you will not administrate your way to this kind of life. You will pray your way there, asking God to grant you, strengthening you. So that when you come together, this is your burden. Not getting sidetracked into praying for an easy life or a superficial change in temporary circumstances. But praying most of all, Lord God, would you, by your spirit, close this gap between who we are and who we could be in Christ? Inner renewal is a prayer project. Secondly, inner renewal needs Holy Spirit strength. Inner renewal needs Holy Spirit strength. Now, let me just try for a moment to show you, if I can, the structure of the passage. I know some of you are now thinking, oh my goodness, I already thought this was dull. This is even worse. The structure. Steve, are you serious? Yes, I am serious. It is really useful to see the structure of the passage. So look down and try and track with me, and I've got some PowerPoint slides which may or may not help so you can look at those as well he introduces the idea in verse 14 that he is praying we've seen that together haven't we he is kneeling before the father and then what follows really are essentially two parallel prayers Uh, two things that he is saying to god while he's on his knees before the father one starts in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory and the other starts with another word that in verse 17 partway through that you being rooted and grounded in love What you'll notice is that these two parallel prayers both end with similar statements, similar goals, if you like. The first goal is there at the beginning of verse 17 when he says that he's praying that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the second one in verse 19, at the end of verse 19, is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I want to suggest to you that those two aims of these two prayers are essentially the same thing, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But what it means is you've got one kneeling, two requests, one shared goal. Now, that means that the bit in between also, I think, needs to be understood together. So when he says in the first request that he prays that God might strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being... And in the second re- request, when he says that we may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, essentially those two things are best to be understood together. Together. They are at two sides of the same coin. So we still have the queen's head on one side of our coins and some other thing on the other side. Uh, but essentially it's the same value, even though it's different images. And that's the same with these things. Strength from the Spirit to comprehend the love of Christ is essentially describing the same thing. And the value of them both is that we might be full of Christ. On the one side it says, Holy Spirit strength. On the other side it says, grasping the size of God's love. Now, if that is actually right, and if by some miracle of grace you are still tracking me, that means that Paul is saying something like this, and you can zone back in now. He's saying this, I am praying for you. That by the power of the Spirit at work in your inner being, you may be able to understand something that by its very nature surpasses knowledge, which is the size of God's loving Christ. In other words, this renewal of the inner being, this good life that we are talking about together this morning, is a prayer project. Why? Well, because it requires God's Spirit's power for you and I to grasp what is... Essentially ungraspable to understand what by its nature is ununderstandable, which is just how big the love of Christ is for us. Think about what Paul is assuming here. Notice on the one hand, he is assuming that getting to know the size of Christ's love is one, uh, not something I can do by myself, yeah? I need the Spirit's help. And two, it's a task that I never complete. You can see that. Paul is not talking here to non-Christians coming to understand the love of Christ for the first time, see. He's not speaking to a, a group of people who've read John 3, 16 for the first time. Like, wow, you mean God loves me? It's not that, is it? No, he's praying for Christians who well understand the language of God's love and is praying that in the Spirit they might have strength in their inner beings to grasp the size of Christ's love for them. And that means, doesn't it, that this gap between what is in my Christian life and what could be in my Christian life is about understanding God's love for me in Christ Jesus. But, but it's not understanding it with my brain because it's unfathomable it's understanding it in my inner being by the power of the spirit you know put the same thing in, in the negative it means that the, the biggest danger in my spiritual life is not simply that i just forget that christ loves me as if that just kind of evaporates from my mind and i forget it that that's not my great spiritual danger My great spiritual danger, and maybe especially for those of us who are serious about looking at the Bible, this is our great spiritual danger, is that we try and grasp the love of Christ simply intellectually. I know that. I can write that down. I can get that right in a theological exam. Because Paul says, no, no, you cannot grasp the love of Christ simply intellectually. You need Holy Spirit power in your inner being to grasp what is ungraspable by you. Now I don't know all of you very well and I don't know whether this might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might sound a little bit weird as if Paul is suggesting that we somehow feel our way through the Christian life. Well, let me reassure you that I don't think it's that at all. I think it's fair to assume that Paul believes that the Holy Spirit would use God's word to help us grasp this great reality. Paul is not praying for some sort of brainless spiritual experience fueled by soft music and wishful thinking. That's not it at all. It's, it's rooted in the gospel. It's founded on God's word, but still it is an experience of the new inner being by the power of the Spirit in response to our prayers grasping what alone our brains cannot fathom which is Christ's love for us and so let me ask you this morning have you ever prayed like that for you for others you know not just asking you know Lord please help me make it through today today is is a dark day I don't know whether I'm going to make it to the end that's a great thing to pray isn't it but you could pray something better You know, not just praying that your needs might be met, which is a fine thing to pray as well, isn't it? But have you prayed that you might grow in an experiential grasp by the Spirit of the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus? That this gap between who you are and who you could be might be breached by a work of the Spirit in our inner being, grasping the love of God for us in Christ Jesus? let me tell you this, in my own experience, it is that God answers that prayer by making you weaker and more helpless. It is, in my experience at least, and I think this is true to God's word, it is not possible for our inner beings to be strong while our sinful selves still think we can do it all on our own. And so the sweetness of this indwelling work of the Spirit tends to come when we know that really, left to ourselves, we would have nothing to offer and all we could expect was condemnation for screwing up. And again, this isn't hard for us to apply, is it? This means that the good life of the New Testament, that as we grow weaker in ourselves, we might grow stronger in the Lord. That as we lay down our lives in his service, whether it's as an assistant pastor of Sterling Park Baptist Church, or whether it's as a regular member, what we should be praying for is this spiritual renewal that knows with increasing clarity and a greater joy that we are loved though unlovely, saved though we were lost, carried though we would run away on our own. And whatever the next 10 years hold, you know, if you find yourself growing in this assurance of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, you'll know it's not because you're clever or wise or strong, but because God is at work by his Spirit. That's the second point. Thirdly, inner renewal is being full of Jesus. But we now come to the end of the passage, to that joint request that the Ephesians would both have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith, and that they might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, I said before that I think those essentially explain one another. They're essentially the same thing. But let me try and unpack that a little bit for you. Christ is the fullness of God. Colossians 1 tells us that being filled to all the fullness of God is is therefore having Christ in our hearts. And having Christ in our hearts is the same as having the Spirit dwelling in us because the the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Now, of course, in an important sense, this is already true of the Ephesians already. If you glance back to chapter 1 and verse 13, you will find that the, the Ephesians received the Spirit as they are converted. But Paul's point seems to be that while the Spirit is theirs, still the life of the Christian, the ongoing experience of the Christian, is that the Spirit who becomes fully theirs at conversion is increasingly taking up residence in their life, settling in, making his dwelling there, making his home. You know, and again, this gap between what is in my Christian life and what could be in my Christian life is then described essentially as the Spirit increasingly making himself at home in me. We've been staying for a couple of nights with the McKinleys who have moved into their new home, right? You, they are in their new home. But there is, and I hate to break this to you guys, but there is still work to be done in, in the home, right? Right? And essentially it's like that spiritually, isn't it? At the point that we become a Christian, the the keys of our life are handed over. The the Lord takes residence in us by his spirit. He He is never any more in us than he is in us when we are converted. But he has some work to do. To make himself at home. To get the place looking like he really wants it to. To unpack his stuff. Put it out in the places where he wants it to be knock down a few walls. In fact, if C.S. Lewis is right, when the Spirit moves into our hearts, he actually does quite a lot more work than we first anticipated, and bashes down quite a few more walls. So in a really important sense, the Spirit is fully in us, but is making himself more at home. And the Christian life is about him continuing to make his home in our hearts and from there to strengthen us to grasp just exactly what it is that Christ has done for us, that we might be full to the brim with the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, you you read that and you go, well, that's essentially a prayer that will ultimately only be answered in glory, won't it? When together we will see the face of Christ and be with him, sharing together in the glories of his new creation in this world remade where sin and death and suffering are removed. But ahead of that day, Paul's prayer is that we would, we would live this day, today, increasingly in the light of what will be true on that day, that what will be ours physically might be ours spiritually increasingly, as Christ, by the Spirit, settles in, sweeps up the mess, and makes his home in our inner beings. Which kind of brings us back, doesn't it, to where we started this morning, Let me ask you again, what is the good life? What is the life that you want? What is a life well lived? What is a good way for you to spend the next 10 years or the next 20 years or or the, the lifetime that the Lord might give you? Well, let me tell you, it's not about prioritizing easy circumstances or material comfort. Let me tell you that the good life is not secured by politics. I think we're all going to learn that again, aren't we? Neither is the good life secured by some kind of process of self-actualization. It's not, is it? Really, the good life is about knowing God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. It's about a life that is increasingly shaped by a spiritual grasp of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. A life that brings God glory as it receives from him over and over and over again strength in the inner being. And let me say to you this, listen, don't you want that, right? Even as I describe that, don't you want it? I know I do. I long for a life that is shaped increasingly by the love of Christ and not by my own messed up desires. Lord, save me from those, please. And in a life that isn't blown around by circumstances or washed away at the first blast of temptation. You know, and if I want that life, if you want that life, what do we do? What do we do? For this reason, I get on my knees before the Father and I pray. Lord, will you do more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that has worked within us. For the sake of your glory, do it, please, Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come recognizing that there is a big gap between who we are and who we could be, even as Christians this morning. And we want to pray that you might close that gap by the work of your Spirit in us, giving us strength in our inner beings, not to live for our own desires. Not to build comfortable lives materially, but to grasp spiritually just how much you love us in the Lord Jesus, the one who gave himself for us, bled, died, rose again, that we might know you. In his name we pray. Amen.